Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 39 this time. Cold conformity and warm compassion, part B. Last time we saw the cold conformity. This time we're going to see the warm compassion. So the gospel of Matthew is like an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. It's written by a man named Matthew, right. Who knows what his name was, his Hebrew name, though? Levi. Levi. Good job. You guys know your Bible. Okay. It is uh, one of the synoptic gospels. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's a life and account of Jesus Christ. That's what they call it, a synoptic gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they call the synoptics because they're giving a synopsis of Jesus' life. And so um, Matthew wrote to a primarily Jewish audience to tell the Jews, look, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus has given teaching. Matthew gave his genealogy to prove that he was qualified to be the Messiah. Um, And some people have been receiving him and some people have not been receiving him. Some people have been fighting against what Jesus says. And primarily, there are two groups of people that have been giving him a real hard time. And who knows what they are? Pharisees. Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees, we haven't really met them yet. So there's another one. But good, though. Really good. The scribes. Awesome. The scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were like, you know, forgive the term, but I mean, they were like super Jews. They were, they were like super dedicated to the scriptures. They were so dedicated to the scriptures, they made thousands of laws on top of laws to make sure that you never broke the laws in the law of God, you know, and they followed rules tediously, right? And they thought that that's what pleased God was keeping the I's crossed and the, uh, the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And then, so that's what they thought. And, um, they were judging Jesus and his disciples last time based on their man-made traditions. You remember that? They come to Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees come and they say, Jesus, how come your disciples don't wash their hands when they eat? And it's not that they just don't wash their hands like hygienically. What the question was is why don't they observe the tradition of the elders, because the elders, you remember, had a hand-washing ritual that they did religiously, um, and they thought, you know, this is important as Scripture. They made it up themselves, um, you know, but they said, this is important as Scripture. And so they were judging Jesus' disciples based on that. Why don't they do this same thing? Um, they didn't come to ask Jesus, what about all the miracles? What about all the healings? What about all this other stuff? They say, no, why don't your disciples wash their hands <laughs> like, like we do? And we pointed out that this cold conformity, that there's a way that people look at religion, at Christianity even, that don't really know about Christianity. They look at it as a cold conformity to a list of rules. And they think that's all it is. They think God's pleased with me when I keep the rules. And when I'm not pleased, you know, when I don't keep the rules, he's not pleased with me. Um, in order to go into heaven, I need to conform to some rules. And they think that, you know, that that's really the, the whole gist of being religious or being a Christian. But Jesus said last time something very profound uh, in response to this whole, why don't they wash their hands the right way? Jesus said, you know, it's not what goes in to a person that defiles them in through their mouth, like dirty hands, you know, eating with their... It's not what goes into a person that defiles them. It's what comes out of them that reveals their heart. And their heart is what's defiled, right? So Jesus might say to some, you know, legalistic sort of modern day Pharisee, and he might say, you know what? You can go to the church, you can give money, you can even pray, you could even do all this other stuff. But if your heart is not converted because you don't trust in Jesus and and your heart hasn't been converted, all this out, 
side external religious stuff that you do, it's not going to really make any difference. You know, it's not going to touch the heart. So that's what we were doing last time. We were looking at the cold conformity of the Pharisees. Now this time, we're going to see Jesus' warm compassion. Now, verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now, that's the opening scene here. In this message today, there's three parts. We're going to see Jesus' compassion. Okay, the first one is in number one. It's, we're going to see Jesus' compassion beyond cultural boundaries. Next, we're going to see Jesus' compassion beyond personal boundaries. And then number three, we're going to see Jesus' compassion beyond numerical boundaries, right? And so in these three little sections of scripture, um, that's really the theme is compassion. Now, what is compassion? Let's talk about that just for a second. What is compassion? Compassion is a deep awareness of the suffering of another person coupled with the desire to relieve that suffering. I'm going to read that again because that's really the first thing on your handout. You already notice if you're following along. Uh, that deep awareness of the suffering of another coupled with the desire to relieve that suffering, right? If I'm compassionate, I feel the needs around me. I feel what other people are going through, but it doesn't stop with me just feeling it. I actually have the desire to do something about it. That's what compassion is. Now, so what... What is this message really going to say to us here today? Well, the deep compassion of Jesus Christ compels us. It compels us to be more compassionate ourselves. And that's really the so what of this message. You know, the Bible says that in end times, that hearts will grow cold because the things get so evil. There's so much sin in this world that eventually, you know, people just start saying, I just have to kind of ignore how bad things are. And then when you start to do that, if you're not careful, your heart starts to get calloused towards the needs of people. Compassion is one of these things that is getting replaced by more and more by just selfishness, selfish pursuit of my own life. I would be compassionate, but I'll tell you what, I got a full schedule, man. I got to do what I got to do. So I have to just kind of put this tunnel on and kind of just ignore, and my heart's kind of getting more and more calloused. And so I think that's a big so what for this message. So what? Well, when we look at the compassion of Jesus Christ, we can't help but be moved by it, right? And I I think that's a good thing. That's a good thing for me. I know that's a good thing for me is to be moved by the compassion of Christ. And so that's where we're going. In this first section, you see this Gentile woman, she comes to Jesus, and she... um, they were in Tyre and Sidon. So he got out from there. Where was Jesus? He was in Gennesaret, okay? In Gennesaret. Now, that's on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. I have a map there just to show you because we can get our bearings. Okay, this is Gennesaret. And then, so this is a zoomed in of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, sorry, it looks like a bad graphic. It looks like Nintendo, like the first version, uh, with a little box. Okay, so some of you are like Nintendo. 
right. Okay, so Gennesaret is right here. And now on the next screen, I'll show you. There's actually something on the screen right at Gennesaret. That's weird. Now, so Gennesaret here, zoomed out. Now they're going to go up to this area of Phoenicia, right? You guys familiar with the Phoenicians and the story of Alexander the Great and the city of Tyre and all that? Uh, so they go up here to Tyre and Sidon, okay? Now, that's where we're at, just so you know. It's the Mediterranean Sea right there. You guys know your geography a little bit. Mediterranean Sea over here is Italy, you know, and then Greece. And, okay. So Tyre and Sidon are... Now, this is important. He's going now to a pagan area, right? Why did Jesus go there? Mark, in his account, tells us, Mark 7.24, says that he went there and he went into a house and wanted no one to know it. So by this time, I think Jesus is trying to get away and get some like R&R, you know? You know what that means? I mean, rest, some of you are like, I've never had that in my life. That's sinful. I don't ever rest or relax. Well, Jesus does. And so he's trying to go here and uh, he's trying to go get away from all the people questioning him, hassling him. You know, there gets to be a point in ministry where the spiritual attack, you know, you just, you got it's, it's not unspiritual to get away and rest, Right. Tyre and Sidon, strong condemnations in the Old Testament. Woe to Tyre and Sidon in the book of Isaiah. You guys know we're going through the Old Testament. Now, a pious Jew, a religious observant Jew, would not go to this area, right? So Jesus, you see, he's going into places against cultural boundaries, right? The Jews wouldn't have anything to do with this place. But it looks like Jesus has an appointment, and you see who it's with in verse 22. It's a woman of Canaan. Now, interesting to use that term because the Canaanites, uh, you know, it's kind of an antiquated term, but Matthew is doing that because uh, he's trying to communicate that this woman is not a Jew. She's a Gentile. The word Gentile just means not a Jew. And the Jews culturally at this point, they hated Gentiles. They had nothing to do with them. They thought they were the worst thing that would ever, and, and a Gentile is anybody but a Jew. So let's put it like this. Jews at this time, by and large, hated anybody that was not a Jew right? And they were extremely prejudiced. They were extremely, you know, they thought, they thought everybody else, Gentiles, were created uh, as kindling for hell, <laughs> really. Uh, you find this in the rabbi's writings and stuff. That's what they thought. They thought they were the only ones going to heaven because they were sons and daughters of Abraham. They wanted nothing to do with these people. These people are despised. But Jesus is there, right? And now Jesus goes and he finds this woman, you know, a divine appointment, right? And look what she says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now that term is a messianic term for Jesus. In the Old Testament, in the books of First uh, and Second Samuel, God promised David, the king of Israel, that there would be, uh, essentially that the Messiah would come from his lineage, right? And so that term, son of David, all the Jews knew that King David, that God promised to him that the Messiah would come from him. So now what she's saying is, I know Jesus is the Messiah. That's what she's saying. She's calling him Messiah. She's calling him uh, Savior by saying Son of David. Now, as a Gentile, it's pretty interesting. She must know her Bible a little bit, right? Or something. But she knows who Jesus is. And look what she asks for. What does she ask for there? Mercy. Yeah. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. That's what mercy is. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. You see the difference between those two things? 
Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. See the difference between those two things? Relent, Lord. I don't deserve anything from you. You're the Messiah. You're the Jewish Messiah. I'm the Gentile. I understand the cultural things. She's well aware of the cultural things. And she's saying, I don't deserve anything. And she's appealing to God based on his mercy. By the way, that's how I appeal to God. When I pray to the Lord, I pray to him and I appeal to his mercy. I don't ever say, Lord, you owe me anything. Oh my goodness. I don't want the Lord to give me what I deserve. Because if he gave me what I deserve, I deserve hell and separation from God. I do. I've lied, cheated, stolen, lusted, all these different things that I've done, failed to do the right thing, failed to love people. The list goes on and on and on of the evil things that I've done that warrants death, right? So I don't go to God and say, God, give me what I deserve. I go and say, please, Lord, because you're so good, give me what I don't deserve. Please don't, please don't give me what I deserve, right? A fool goes to God and says, I've earned something good from you. Oh, man, you better watch out. God, give, give me mercy. And then look what she says. I love what she says. There, Have mercy on me, but who has the problem? Her daughter, right? Her daughter is demonically possessed, and Jesus says, have mercy on me. I love that. Now, here's why she's such a good example to follow, this woman so far. She's an intercessor. You ever heard the term intercessor? They've got an intercessory prayer ministry at the church or whatever, right? A true intercessor identifies with the needs of people. And that's what she's doing. Lord, have mercy on me. When you pray before the Lord um, and you have this gift of identifying with people in their needs and, and appealing to Jesus for them, you're an intercessor, right? Now, it's a good example of that, you know, be like her. And she doesn't even care about the cultural boundaries either. She says, my daughter has a great need. I identify with this need. And so I need to get to Jesus. I don't care what barrier is in the way. And so she's a great example, right? If you have that gift of intercession, you, you relate right away with this woman. You're like, yep, I can see her. I can see myself in her. Now, Jesus draws faith out of this Gentile woman in an odd way. Verse 23, but he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this is an incredibly debated passage, okay? First of all, it's odd that Jesus doesn't, he just doesn't even respond. <laughs> she comes up probably crying, you know, most likely. Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is possessed by the devil. And he's just... And he answers her not a word, and he speaks to his disciples, apparently, because he answered her not a word. So then, and then he said, he must have not answered her, and he must have kind of spoke to them. I don't know. We're just trying to see what the text says. And, and he says, but I, have, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, you know from reading the New Testament, from reading the epistles, especially the book of Acts, that when Paul was bringing the gospel to different cities, he first of all went to the synagogues, and, which where the Jews are, and then he went to the Gentiles. And he keeps using this phrase, you keep seeing this phrase, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. Greek is just a word for Gentile. 
right? You see that? A lot of times you're reading through the New Testament, the gospel goes out to the Jew first and then the Greek. Now, Jesus is saying that same thing here. He's saying, and I'll break this down simply. Essentially, God's chosen people are the Jews, right? And God blessed them with the scriptures. God blessed them with the prophets. God blessed them with the kings. He blessed them with the promised land, all this different stuff. And through them, Abraham, uh, you know, Genesis chapter 12, the covenant with Abraham, through them, the whole world would be blessed. You remember Genesis chapter 12? It, you know, the, it's probably the most important, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Through the Jews, the world would be blessed. So it's important to understand that um, what Jesus is saying here is this is just how the whole thing works, is the gospel first comes to the Jews and then the Gentiles are blessed as sort of an overflow, as sort of a byproduct of what God, you know. And so you see that theme through the whole Bible, if you've read the Bible. And so what is about to be said here, you need to keep this in mind, what I just said, to understand what else is coming, okay? So what I think Jesus is doing is he's saying something here that the culture would know about. The culture would understand, uh, you know, and he's playing off this cultural division between a Jew and a Gentile and a Canaanite woman. And it's not that Jesus, we're going to see, it's not that he's reluctant to bless her. He's drawing faith out of her. Essentially, he's saying, hey, it's inappropriate to bring blessings to the Gentiles before Israel have been offered salvation. Uh, Paul does the you know, thing, the same thing. It's almost like he's saying, you want a blessing from me, but hey, you're not supposed to be talking to me, right? Right? I think it's that kind of idea. Now, there are other people that say Jesus is being mean to her, you know? I even heard one of the most foolish things by this guy, Brandon Robertson, that is just, he's become an internet sensation. He's uh, totally blasphemous, um, uh, homosexual theologian. And he's reinterpreting the Bible for your kids, pretty much. And so um, he interprets this passage saying, Jesus is racist and mean and all this stuff like that. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's absolute blasphemy, right? Now, what Jesus is doing is drawing faith out of this woman, okay? Now, the disciples, they say, send her away. It's interesting, that word, send her away, because she cries out. That word, cries out, it's... An onomatopoeia, you know what that is? It's where you make a sound that like sounds like a word. And in other words, in, in the Greek that they were speaking, the word was like, she rah, 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 she cries out like a crow, right? And so the disciples are kind of like, dude, I've had enough of ministry at this point. Send this woman away. Just bless her because she's not going to leave us alone. And that's the tone uh, when you look at the Greek language. Now, by the way, do you see yourself in the disciples like that? I do at points where I'm just like, get I'm tired of the needs. Just get them away. You know what I mean? That's, that's a human reaction, right? Not very compassionate when you're tired. Anybody not very compassionate when they're tired? Me too. We're humans. Verse 25. Then she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Now, 
this is where people take off on this, like, why would he call her a dog, right? Well, the Gentiles were referred to, like the Jews, I told you how much these Jews, the Jews were prejudiced by this point, and they called Gentiles dogs. But there are two different words used for dogs, okay, in, in the Greek language. And then, the, you know, the typical word that was used by most, your average Jew, was a word that meant like these mangy dogs that ran all around all Israel and they were dangerous and bite your kids and stuff like that. But Jesus here uses a different word and that's why the translators have little dogs there. Jesus is referring to a little house dog that um, was common and, and they would go around and eat the scraps on the floor. You see what Jesus is saying here is he's bringing out this cultural stuff, Right? And the disciples are hearing this, listening, and, and they're, they're familiar with the way things are. They're already probably a little puzzled by why Jesus took them to Tyre and Sidon, because you're not supposed to talk to those people. And, and so they're, they're all watching this scene, and, and Jesus is essentially giving a voice to this cultural thing. It's like, you know what, because everybody thinks the Gentiles don't qualify for the blessings of God, Right? Right? Some people feel like that. I don't qualify for the blessings of God. You certainly do. God came and he died for all men and women. But Jesus is bringing that to the forefront, you see. And so then it's true, uh, you know, she goes along with it. She says, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs, see, she understands I'm a Gentile. I'm not trying to take the blessing of Israel. I, I get it. I understand how this works. I've come to you. I don't care about the cultural barriers. I'm here. Lord, help me. I'm worshiping. I'm crying out. And so uh, she's a good example, again, in persistence in prayer, right? You ask Jesus one time, he doesn't respond, keep praying, you know, keep being insistent. You're praying, you're interceding. And verse 28, then Jesus answered and said to her, here's his true heart, oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour, right? You see, Jesus drew this whole moment out where everybody in the room was like, yeah, yeah, this is yeah, you're not supposed to talk to this lady and you're not supposed to bless. And he brings it out and he just blesses her, blesses her socks off. She doesn't even question it too. She doesn't say, are you sure? She, she just was healed from that very hour, goes home, trusts it, takes the Lord at his word. And uh, Jesus displayed compassion unto this Gentile woman. His, cult, his compassion went beyond cultural boundaries, right? That's a good thing to know. And I alluded to it before. You might feel like maybe social, socioeconomically, something like that you don't fit with, or education, maybe you don't fit in, or, or maybe you grew up in the wrong part of town, or maybe your parents, you know, were alcoholics or something, or whatever it is. You may think that you are disqualified from the blessings of God, not so right? God, there's no boundary when it comes to Jesus giving compassion and love to you. He wants to love you, you know? And that's a good thing for you to remember. Now, here's a little bit of a hardcore word. Man, oh man, oh man, make sure that you have that same heart for all cultures and all groups of people like Jesus does, right? Now, <clears throat> verse 29 through 31, compassion beyond personal boundaries. Uh, verse 29, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up to the mountain and sat there. Now, Mark 7.31 tells us that he went to this region called the Decapolis. Now, you see the Decapolis here? Who knows what deca means? Ten, polis. So there were ten cities in this area. That's the Decapolis. Now, they went from Tyre and Sidon down here, skirted the Sea of Galilee, 
came to the Decapolis and Jesus went up on a mountain and uh, he went up there. He's still trying to get quiet time, right? Uh, stuff keeps happening. Uh, just need some quiet time. I want to pause there just for a second. And I want to say, look, if Jesus needs quiet time, if he wants quiet time, you need it. You have to stop running yourself frantically because you don't have anything good to give out unless you sit and receive. Your ministry, your life needs to be what spills out of your quiet time with Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it's just flesh. There's no fruit being produced. It's useless. But if you are so filled from sitting at Jesus' feet that the blessings just run out of you to the world around you, that, my friend, is ministry. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in and through your life, okay? I'm preaching to myself. Shoot, I need a reminder with this one, okay? That's, it's okay. You rest. Jesus goes up and he, and he goes to rest. Verse 30, well, then the great multitudes came to him, <laughs> uh, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. <laughs> Jesus was like a celebrity at this point. He, he could have been, right? He had multitudes of people following him, right? Notice he's approachable still. He's up on the mountain. He's trying to get some alone time, but he doesn't have his bodyguards or his disciples go to say to these guys, hey, keep this multitude away from me for just like a half hour. Like I need some me time. I got the cow gone. You know, I got the bath drawn. It's all good. You know, I'm just going to get some candle scents from Glade. We're going to just have a, you know, a nice time. And re- I'm going to relax. <laughs> Nothing like that. He's approachable. Even though he's got these, you know, he's trying to have some personal time. No doubt he was exhausted. <coughs> Gentiles, these multitudes, that area of the Decapolis, it's not a Jewish area. You have to understand Matthew's readers, primarily Jews, when they hear about Jesus blessing Gentiles, it's just jaw-dropping to them. Just like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? They don't even know if they can keep reading when they're reading something like this, right? But he goes and this great multitude goes and finds him and they laid them down at his feet. You know, put yourself in that crowd. You hear Jesus is somewhere, right? This is rugged territory. It's not like you're hopping in the Honda, you know, and this is rugged territory. And you're picking up your friend that has, he's maimed. He's missing a limb. She's missing a limb. You got your daughter that, you know, has uh, something wrong with her. And she's been in pain and suffering for years and you're going and you're taking her to the only place where you know there's any hope. And, and look what it says there. They laid them down at Jesus' feet. Now, I don't know. That just really struck me when I tried to picture that. When I tried to picture that in my mind of, of Jesus sitting there and people laying people down at his feet, these people that you care about so desperately, the ones, you know, mental problems, um, depressions, anxieties, fears, physical problems, all these different issues, bringing them to Jesus' feet. It's just a beautiful picture to me. So the multitude, well, look what it says. They laid him down on his feet and he healed them, right? So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, verse 31, the maimed, 
made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus' compassion beyond his own personal boundary, right? And when a work of God happens like this, people marvel and they glorify God. When I look at my wife and I see her stand whole before people and speak when she was like in a dungeon that she made for herself, the devil in her, and I see her, when I see people, man, you glorify God. You say only God could have done this. Compassion beyond personal boundaries. First of all, it was beyond cultural boundaries. Now, third and finally, compassion beyond numerical boundaries. Now, Jesus called his disciples to himself. And look at, he said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. How long were they, how long was Jesus ministering to these people? Three days, right? <laughs> you imagine three days of ministry, of healing? You ever been around two people trying to take care of sick people? It's the most draining thing in the world. But Jesus spends three days with a multitude and he heals them all, every one of them. And then he turns around and he says, I have compassion on them because they, have, they ran out of food. They don't have anything to eat. And so he's drawing his disciples into this at this point. You notice that he said to the disciples, I have compassion on them. And you'd think the disciples would say, yeah, I remember this thing where there were these 5,000 people and Jesus, remember you took those loaves and those fishes and you just, you fed them all. You could do this. But they don't say that. I love that line in there where it says, um, I don't want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Now, this is not what this text means, but it's not too far. You know, you'll give me a little liberty here for a second. But spiritually speaking, Jesus doesn't want you to leave here hungry, right? If you come to Calvary Chapel or you go to any church where they're teaching the word of God and you go away hungry, that's because you're, you're, you're not drawing near to Jesus. You say, well, this doesn't really do much for me here. Well, Jesus doesn't want you to go away hungry, if you want to go away hungry, it's because you're, you're not taking it in. You're not applying what God's saying. If you're an empty Christian walking around empty, it's, because, it's, because, it's not because Jesus is unwilling to fill you, right? It's because you're not getting in the word. It's because you're not spending time with him in prayer. I'm not trying to shame you here. I'm trying to speak to you so you will understand that this hunger that you have, this spiritual hunger, Oh, life's empty. I hate life. life okay, there's got to be more than this. Oh, I'm just so depressed. I'm so bored all the time. Blah, blah. You know what? You're empty, man. You're empty. It's because you're not taking what Jesus is offering. Right? He doesn't, he's not withholding it from you. You're just not taking it. Right? So I don't have time to take it. Oh, well, that's on you. You have time for everything that you love. Guarantee you have time for everything that you love. You make time for the things that you love. If you're empty, it's not his fault. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to encourage you. No. Verse 33, the disciples said to him, well, where could we get enough bread in this wilderness to, to fill such a great multitude? <laughs> Their reaction, the disciples' reaction to this great numerical need is, where are we going to get the resources to do anything about this? 
right? Now, some uh, people just say, well, how could these guys forget what Jesus did? I mean, it was like two weeks ago in, the, in our study, remember? He fed the 5,000? How could they forget? It's like the same thing. Well, you know, I've heard a lot of people say that. And they say, well, disciples are knuckleheads, man. It takes a long time to get through to them. And, and you know, that's true, <laughs> right? Uh, it does take a long time to get through to us. I, th- I think more or less, I think more likely what's happening is they just don't think that Jesus is going to bless the Gentiles in the Decapolis. That, I think, makes more sense with what's going on here. I don't think they're all that forgetful. I mean, if you saw 5,000 people get fed, you know, you wouldn't think. But I just don't think they think Jesus will deal with this because of the, you know, cultural things. That would make more sense. At any rate, these disciples see this massive need and their response is, where are you going to do this? How are you going to get the resources to meet this need? There's a numerical boundary here. There's too much, Lord. I, I, no. Don't give up when the need's great. I love hanging out with my niece, right? You guys ever met her? She goes to church here. I love hanging out with her. And one of the favorite things that happens when I hang out with her is she'll, she'll say, you know, Adam, can you, can you do this or that for me, Uncle Adam? And I love to do stuff for her, you know? And it's, it's stuff that, like, to me, it's easy, you know? Like when you take the jar off the pickles, you know, or something like that, or the lid, you know? Or, you know what I mean? To me, can you open this container so I can get my markers out of there? Easy stuff, right? Some, sometimes I try to teach her about exercise, and I'll be lifting the 15-pound weights, and she'll have the 8-pound weight, and she's like, oh, oh, and I'm like, you can do it, you know, don't give up. And, and, uh, but it makes you think about the difficulty of the task. It's just only proportionate to the strength of the person doing the task, Right? So the things that are impossible for her, she asks me to do, and I'm like, yeah, Uncle Adam here, take the lid off, no problem, I can do anything, (laughs) you know, and it's cute, I love it, you know, but I mean, think about the same thing when you run into a huge need in your life, you say, I don't know what I'm going to do about this, but look, you're looking at it through your strength. Now, God has all the strength. A huge need to you is not a huge need to God. You say, well, how come he doesn't answer every single prayer? Well, there's, that's a whole other subject. He doesn't do everything you think. He does what he thinks. He does what is best. But you have, to, you have to not go through life getting discouraged at huge needs, right? Your faith, just, you can't let your faith diminish. You need to take these huge needs to this huge God, right? And I think that this is a word for somebody here today. When I was studying, it's like the Lord said, this is for somebody here today. You need to go home and pray with more, uh, you need your faith restored. You need to stop thinking that uh, the need is so great and, and what could happen. We don't have the resources. We don't have the finances to do this thing. We don't have the building to do it. We don't have the whatever. You need to take the big needs to the big God, right? You can take the small needs to him too. There's nothing, you're not lacking faith to take small needs to God. It's not, oh, you only take the big needs to God. no. No, man, you take all the needs to God. Just like my niece needing help from somebody that has more strength, I need help from a God who has more strength than me. I don't look at, you know, you don't look at these difficulties the same way when you know you've got a God that can do anything, right? No. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? He said, and they said, seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks and broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the multitude 
Beautiful picture. He does the same sort of thing, lets the disciples be involved in the ministry. They distribute the food. So they all ate and were filled. They took up seven large baskets full of fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. So, you know, you could at least double that, right? Women and children along with the 4,000 men, at least 8,000 people, at least. Bigger than Clear Lake. And uh, Jesus meets this huge need. He didn't let cultural boundaries, personal boundaries, or numerical boundaries get in the way of him distributing compassion to people. And that's our God, right? Now, I want to make a few notes in closing here. Um, applications, because we could read a passage like this and come away with this. In a group like this, this many people, there's probably a bunch of different ideas floating around of how to apply this passage. Now, I'll show you what I mean. Because I wrestled with this. You know, as a pastor, I like to bring out application of the scriptures. And I'm always bringing out exhortations. You should do this, you should do this, right? couple ways you could do that. You could say, well, here's an example. Be like that Gentile woman and be an intercessor. And that's a good application. I think that's legitimate. Don't let any barrier stop you. Get to Jesus, intercede, identify with the needs of other people, worship the Lord, praise him, trust him, hold on until he blesses you. Keep praying. That's good. Now, the next application that I think, this is iffy, saying you need to be like Jesus in your display of compassion. Okay, well, that needs to be qualified, okay? As Americans in 2022 in Mason City, Iowa, sitting in Calvary Chapel in a chair right in front of me, we tend to read the Bible as just a collection of good moral stories. Yes, there are moral lessons in the scriptures, but you know, the main point of the Bible is not about you. Did you know that? The main point of the Bible is about, it's about Jesus Christ. He's the hero of the story. The Bible is not about you, right? Now, people are making it all about you. There are teachers out there that that's their whole ministry is turn it into this pop psychology, a few moral tips, a few things to do with your life, and they teach the Bible like it's any other pop psychology book, and it's not to be taught like that. That's dangerous. If I was to tell you to leave here today and say, you know what, church, you need to be like Jesus in your compassion, Wow, you just put a weight on me that I cannot bear. If you're taking seriously what I say here or what the Bible says, you know, I mean, you would you'd say, I can't bear that. For instance, here are some examples maybe of how people might leave the room here today if we don't talk about this. A progressive Christian. They might say, oh, yeah, it's good to be like Jesus. But, you know, Buddha, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, they all do some good stuff. Let's take a page out of Jesus' book. That's good. That's not the application of this passage. That's how progressive Christians view the Bible. It's just whatever. Take the good lessons out of it. Now, the legalistic Christian, this is, this is what they say. I'm not looking at you because I think you're legalistic. <laughs> like you just looked at me. <laughs> Here's what the legalistic Christian hears in this passage. If I don't do good deeds like Jesus, I'm done for. That's what they hear. Okay. Here's the people pleaser. This is what the people pleaser hears. I knew I was wrong for taking me time. See, Jesus went on the mountain and he let everybody interrupt him and he didn't take any me time for himself. I knew I was wrong. I'm such a sinner by trying to have quiet time, right? I need to meet all these needs just like Jesus. I, you know, look, now hear, hear, hear me on this. 
The cultural boundary thing, that's something that all of us can do. We can all drop any cultural boundary between, we can all do that. But this personal boundary, you're not Jesus. You cannot give out like Jesus. You know the first thing my pastor, one of the first things my pastor told me when he was discipling me? He said, Adam, repeat after me. I said, great, I, I like to do simple directions. He says, you are not Jesus. And I was like, whoa, I just, why would you say that? Of course I'm not. Then he proceeded to point out how, listen to the things you talk about, Adam, these burdens that you're carrying. You're carrying burdens that God needs to carry, right? You don't understand that, you're, that the best thing that you can do is get people to Jesus, right? Because he can carry their burdens, right? Now, this is a mistake that a lot of people make when they get into ministry, right? Or they become a Christian and they take the command seriously to make disciples and they want to help people and they want to, they take the burdens on themselves. They become the center of their ministry. And if they're not there, the whole thing falls apart, right? Now you can think of people that you know that that's exactly what they're doing. And those people are burdened. They're stressed. They don't talk about ministry like it's fun. They're not enjoying it. They're not partaking in the labor and the fruits as a good farmer, as Jesus says we ought to. Those people are playing Messiah, right? And that's how they hear a message like this, right? And they've set it up all around them. It all is about them, right? Listen, you've got to stop doing that if that's you. You have to stop being the center of everything that's going on. You need to get people to Jesus. You need to get them to him. You need to take time for yourself and you need to rest. You need to get filled up. Because honestly, if you don't, you're just spreading flesh all over the place. You know, you need to be filled with Jesus. So the application of this passage is not, hey, next time that you're trying to have quiet time and the phone rings, answer it. That's not the, that's not the application of this passage. That would be irresponsible of me as a pastor to put that kind of burden on somebody. That's not it. I, th I think that that's not it. We're, we're in the realm of application here, not interpretation. You know the difference? Interpretation is what does it mean? Application is based on what it means. What do we do about it? Now, the insulated Christian. This is the type of Christian that circles up the wagons. You ever heard that term? Circle up the wagons? Wagon train, you know, like Old West. What they would do when they would circle up the wagons is they would take the wagon train and they would drive it in a circle and park it and they'd sleep in the middle of it so they're insulated from all the danger, from all the wolves, right? No. You have to see in this passage that the Lord Jesus didn't insulate himself from the needs of other people. Now, some of you do this in a very clever way. You say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I know Jesus wants me to do this stuff, but listen, I'm just too busy. I work too often. I've got too much stuff going on in my life to really be concerned about, you know, being a good, you know, like a church member like Jesus has called me to do, loving the people. I can't, I don't have time to sacrifice for anybody else. I mean, I really don't. You know, I don't have time to live like Jesus. And you insulate yourself. You circle up the wagons around yourself to stay insulated from the needs of people. Another clever way people do this is they start, you know, becoming like bigots towards different groups of people. And they start to point out flaws with them. And they start to say, you know, these are sinners. You know what I mean? These are the type of people that, you know, say, I'm never going to go to Target again because they allow both sexes in the bathroom and stuff like that. And it's like, hey, you know, I'm not going to tell you whether to go to Target or not, you know. Uh, and I'm not going to, I don't say that that sort of lifestyle is not 
not sinful at all, but I don't keep myself insulated from the world around me because Jesus didn't do that, right? One of the worst things about the church as a whole, not this church, maybe this church, the whole church, one of the worst things is about when people become Christians and they think that Christianity is just about staying insulated and hanging out and keeping away from all those other people. That's not what Jesus did, right? So an insulated Christian, you, the application's clear for you in this passage. Be like Jesus. Go to people. Go to the needs. Certainly don't insulate yourself from the needs. Look up from your phone every now and again and see that there are people around you that have needs that are hurting. You know, care about that stuff. I'm preaching to myself again. I'm so busy, you know, and I can use that excuse. Don't be so self-centered. Don't be so self-centered. That's not how Jesus was. Here's the, here's the application for all of us. It's just one word. Worship. Worship. When you see this man, this God-man, that has compassion like this, compassion beyond any sort of boundary, doesn't that draw you to worship? Don't you just say, oh my gosh, I love him. I love him. I have bombed it this week, maybe. Maybe you're saying that. I've bombed it. I feel so far from God. I'm, so, I'm such a sinner. I've been a, I've been a jerk to my spouse or something. Whatever it is, you're rolling around something in your head. I've, I'm such a sinner. He loves you. He has compassion to you. He has compassion for you. This Jesus that displays this kind of compassion, worship. I really think that we ought to close this Bible study today in awe of Jesus. Can you see that he cares like no other? Can you see that his compassion knows no boundaries? You know, the greatest work of compassion that Jesus did was to die on the cross, was to give his life on the cross. Nothing compares to Jesus' work on the cross, any work of compassion. God is the God of compassion. Do you know that in the Garden of Eden, he covered Adam and Eve with skins after they made their fig leaf bikinis? Do you know that he gave Noah an ark to protect him through the flood? Do you know that he provided the Passover lamb to spring his people from slavery in Egypt? Do you know he fed and led a grumbling people through the wilderness, caring for them when they complained and just wanted to go back to Egypt? Do you know that he gave his people a land where they just had to walk in and just take it and rest? Do you know that he's the husband that buys back his unfaithful, adulterous wife from the slave block? Do you know he's the burden bearer? He's the despised, mistreated, shamed, struck, and wounded, the one wounded for our transgressions. The one that set his face to Jerusalem, the one that for the joy set before him did not despise the suffering of the cross. Do you know that he's the one that in the garden he said, Father, your will, not my will be done? Do you know that he's the one that while you were dead in trespasses and sins that he died for you? He's merciful to the merciless. He gives pity to the perverted. He gives grace to the humble. He's near to the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. He's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. 
He's the one who subjected himself to the death, even death on a cross. He causes us to sing amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. He causes us to marvel at the fact we benefit from the Savior's blood. How can it be, right? He hung there gasping, taking his last breath, but he was able to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He gives faith to the faithless, love to the calloused, strength to the weary, zeal to the complacent. Oh, the compassion of Christ touching sinners, condescending to you and me. By his wounds we're healed, set free from guilt and from shame and condemnation. From the cross, he says, I love you. That's what Billy Graham said a lot. From the cross, he says, I love you. Oh, the compassion of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we pray and we thank you. We're humbled by you and we're in awe of you. Lord Jesus, nobody could live up to what you did and you lived, you lived it and you did it. You did it for us that we can go free and we thank you. God bless us with a deeper awareness of your love. You've blessed us so richly. Help us to see it more, to know it more. Thank you for your compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>